to Women's Health Weekly from Maiden Lane Medical. We bring you experts from all around the country to help you with your health, life, and happiness. Now for your host, Dr. Kenneth Levy. Welcome back to our Women's Health Weekly. Um, this is our weekly telecast where we bring experts from New York City, from Maiden Lane Medical, from around the world, from around the country, uh, to address women's health issues from a professional, a clinical, a scientific standpoint so that we make sure that our viewers are getting the best possible information that they can get. So I want to introduce to you a guest that I am absolutely, totally excited to have here. And and she has absolutely no idea how long I've been I've been waiting for her to come on. It's awesome. She, and she agreed like instantly to come on and join us this week. Um, Dr. Carol Longroche is a gynecologic oncologist, um, expert in gynecologic oncology and pap smears and and abnormalities associated with the cervix, uterus, reproductive tract, ovaries, fallopian tubes. Um, she's a top-notch surgeon. She's a fantastic human being um, and works at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I can say all of that about her. And I know she's a fantastic human being because I have known her since she was an intern in OBGYN at NYU. So, Carol, welcome to Women's Health Weekly. We're so, I'm pumped. I'm so excited to have you here. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, I am sure, I am 100% sure, we are going to have an awesome conversation today. So, we're going to talk today about uh, pap smears. And what a mundane topic, but what not a mundane topic. What a cool topic. And what an important topic. And if there's um, been any way over the last two or three decades that that women's health has been significantly paid attention to, significantly improved, um, it's in the area of a place where we can actually prevent cancer. And that's what's cool about pap smears, is we have a way to detect and prevent a cancer that's a non-invasive way. So I'm, I'm going to stop talking actually because this is why I brought you on here. Um, you know, I, I could talk, but I, but I brought an expert on here so that we could have a conversation about this. All right, so I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions because you you can explain all this stuff to our audience a whole heck of a lot better than I can. All right, let's start with the basics because when we talk about pap smears, um, I want to know and I want everyone to know what is a pap smear and where is it done and how is it done. The cervix um, is really just the lower part of the uterus. It's the opening to the uterus. Um, it's the part that is accessible um, at the top of the vagina. So um, when a gynecologist examines the cervix, it's usually done um, with a combination of a speculum exam. And the speculum is the instrument that is inserted into the vaginal opening and that is opened slightly to reveal um, the outer portion, the visible part of the cervix. The cervix then extends up and, and um, really just sort of becomes one with the top of the uterine body. And um, the other way that the cervix, cervix is examined is during the bimanual or internal part of the exam where the gynecologist palpates the cervix and feels for any abnormalities. So the examination is both visual and palpable. And a pap smear is when the gynecologist takes a little sample from the outside portion and the canal portion of the cervix, and those cells can then be examined by a cytologist. 
who is a pathologist with extra training in examination of cells um, to look for any abnormalities or precancerous changes. So somebody gets the pap smear, uh, somebody takes the sample, packs it up, sends it off to a lab, the laboratory result comes in and then it's communicated somehow to the patient. As usual, we're getting fantastic questions from our YouTube audience. We'll hold off on a couple of those questions now while we sort of lay the base uh, for what we're talking about. Uh, okay, so we throw this term around a lot. I, I hear it all the time. Of course, I understand it professionally, um, but once again, wanna hear it from the experts. Three letters, HPV, what does that stand for? What is it? Uh, what does it mean? What does it do? Um, does it you know, drive cars and walk around or is it something, is it something people should be worried about? So um, that was uh, gonna be the next thing I was gonna bring up because in modern times, along with that examination of the cells in the cervix, for certain women, the HPV test is also ordered at the same time and is done on that cervical swab sample. The HPV test tests for an infection called the human papillomavirus, and the HPV virus um, is a um, very common human infection. Um, it is an infection that people acquire through sexual activity, but I think um, we really need to do a lot of work to destigmatize this infection because it's so common. Um, you know, the, depending on what study you look at, in some populations, up to 80, 85% of people will be exposed to and will be infected with the HPV infection over the course of their lifetime. Where it becomes very relevant is that we know that the HPV infection can, in certain people, cause precancerous changes in the cervix. And then in certain people with precancerous changes, actual invasive cervical cancer can develop from those. And so the HPV, te the HPV test serves as almost a flag to us as gynecologists to tell us which patients are at higher risk for developing cervical dysplasia, which is another word for precancer or cervical cancer. All right, so I don't wanna freak anybody out. I don't want people to think just because they have HPV, they're going to get cervical cancer. So I'll ask you the question, if I've been diagnosed, if I'm a woman, uh, which I'm not, but if I, have, if I am a woman, or, or a man actually, because men get HPV as well on their penises. So, okay, so if I'm a woman and I've been diagnosed with um, HPV or have been positive for HPV, is that, does that mean I'm going to get cervical cancer? It definitely does not. And as I mentioned before, the rates of HPV exposure and infection um, are very, very high in the, in the population. More people than not um, have been exposed to HPV. But obviously the rate of um, developing a cervical cancer is quite low. So within the group of patients that have HPV or have had HPV, some people will actually get the virus and then their bodies will clear the, vir the virus on their own. Other people will get the virus and the virus will lay dormant in the body and will not cause these precancerous and cancerous changes. But then there are people in whom the virus can be persistent um, and over time those, that, that viral persistence can lead to these um, changes that can be harmful and dangerous. And yes, this is a problem both for men and women. 
Um, men certainly can transmit the virus to their partners, but men are also susceptible to other HPV-associated cancers like penile cancer, anal cancer, and many head and neck cancers. Um, and so um, even though um, routine HPV testing is not a part of men's health, it is very relevant. And so for, for example, non-gynecologic tip, Dentists will do oral cancer screenings to look for HPV-associated oral head and neck cancers for both men and women. Interesting. Got it. Um, maybe I should have my wife's a dentist. Maybe I should have her on here. We can talk. We can talk about HPV and head and neck uh, cancers detectable by detectable by dentists. Um, yeah. Okay. So you said something that kind of piqued my interest. Um, you said that HPV is a is transmitted sexually. If a woman has HPV, does that mean she also has other sexually transmitted diseases? Um, it, it does not mean that. Um, however, um, a routine part of any gynecologic care is discussing with your doctor um, any risk factors you may have, um, such as a new partner or new sexual experience um, that may warrant concurrent testing for other sexually transmitted infections. And this ongoing relationship with your gynecologist um, will really ensure that you're getting access to all these tests, which can really be a part of keeping people healthy. Okay, so I'm gonna ask the corollary question, which is how can I prevent myself, if I'm a woman, how can I prevent myself from getting HPV? What do I do, I do there? This is one of the hardest questions um, that I'm asked in, in my practice. Um, you know, um, unlike some um, sexually transmitted infections, which we say, um, you know, use condoms to prevent sexually transmitted infections, um, condoms don't work perfectly for HPV um, prevention, meaning even skin-to-skin -skin contact, um, you know, using a condom for for contraception and infection control can still transmit HPV. Um, so, um, you know, outside of limiting sexual partners or encounters or monogamous relationships, um, there is really no surefire, and even that's not surefire way because even if your monogamous partner has HPV, it can be transmitted. Um, so we really don't focus as much on the prevention in terms of activity. What we do focus on is vaccination. And so um, we do have a vaccine against HPV. And um, to me, as a cancer doctor, this is a, just the most exciting thing because this is essentially an anti-cancer vaccine. And um, if both men and women are um, vaccinated against HPV, that can actually prevent um, the transmission if, if someone is exposed. All right, so HPV vaccination is, um, to us as physicians, not necessarily at all even remotely a controversial topic. We wish 100% of people got this. Um, who should get an HPV vaccination? And if there's a particular type of person who should get it, how old, do, I mean, when, when does that occur? How does that work? So um, as with everything, um, the sort of indications and guidelines have changed over time as we've learned more. Um, right now, this is actually a vaccination that is that should be first op offered in the pediatrician office. Um, so in the United States, we recommend that boys and girls um, around age 11 or 12 be offered the HPV vaccine. Um, it's understandable that people are concerned. I'm, I'm a parent, and so I understand it's hard to, 
um, you know, give anything to your healthy child. But this is actually one of those things that really can protect their life and their fertility and all sorts of things. So that's the first place. But if a person hasn't received the vaccine as a child, it's something that they can talk to their gynecologist about. The current guidelines cover HPV vaccination up to age 45, but there's really no reason why it, it couldn't be considered um, outside of that for select patients. Um, and in my practice, we really offer it to anyone who would like it. It is a safe vaccine. Um, there are always anecdotes of people who have had bad experiences, and I acknowledge that and empathize with the fear that comes from that. But the scientific data supports that um, other than some transient, you know, soreness in the arm um, or some mild symptoms, that it, it's very safe. So I understand what you're saying. I have myself an eight-year-old daughter, uh, as mm -hmm. do you. So um, we, uh, we get the, the parental anxiety that goes along with um, sort of equating getting a vaccine um, against uh, a virus that's generally sexually transmitted. Um, and then the next thought is, well, well, my daughter's not having sex. And no, for sure, my eight-year-old daughter's not having sex. But at some point, she will. And that's yeah. going to happen. And I, as a parent, I want to do my best to protect her yeah. um, when it comes to getting these things. And I don't want her to get cervical cancer. That's for sure. I agree. And I would say that, um, you know, as someone who feels very passionately about um, my patients and taking care of them, um, you know, the, the pain and suffering and loss that people experience um, with the diagnosis of cervical cancer is really devastating. And I think that um, for me, who sees that and treats that and, and feels, again, very compelled to prevent that whenever I can, um, I think it's a, it's a pretty reasonable trade-off. Let's hit some of the questions that our awesome YouTube audience um, has asked us. Uh, Rosie, um, who is 24, um, is used the term, she's devastated, that her pap smear recently came back as ASCUS. And I know you're about to explain what ASCUS is. Came back as ASCUS, and she has a high-risk positive, not 16 or 18, HPV. Take me through that. Yeah, you know, we think that, um, you know, the data that we have um, is more from how long it takes an abnormal pap smear to become invasive cervical cancer. And we do think that that period of time is probably pretty long, measured in terms of years. Um, and what that offers us is an opportunity to intervene. And I'm sorry that you're devastated, and, and I, I empathize with that, but I, I would challenge you to try to think about it as a real opportunity to keep yourself healthy um, and partner with your gynecologist to take this information that um, is scary and upsetting, but turn it into really the opportunity to stay well and prevent something that, um, that could be much worse. Um, ASCIS stands for Atypical Squamous Cells of Undetermined signif Clinical Significance. And what that means is the cytologists, when they looked under the microscope, saw some changes. Um, and the changes, they couldn't quite be sure whether these changes were benign, like from inflammation, or whether these changes were from um, the start of some precancerous type changes. Um, everyone who has precancerous changes doesn't go on to develop cancer, and the pap smear is really how we ensure that um, by getting the information. 
Um, the next step after an abnormal pap smear is then to do a colposcopy where um, the gynecologist uses basically a fancy microscope to look very closely at the cervix and look at the cells and to identify whether there's any visually concerning lesions. And then in many cases, take a little biopsy of tissue to then give to the pathologist to look for precancerous changes. Depending on the type of precancerous changes, we may just watch because many women, especially 24-year-old women, their bodies will actually heal those changes on their own. However, if the changes are severe, then it may be that an intervention is needed where a little bit of tissue is excised from the outside portion of the cervix, hopefully excising the abnormal cells and treating the problem. I have a corollary question, but I want to get to another YouTube viewer question. JH um, wants to know if there's an HPV 16 history and the, now I don't know how old JH is, um, but JH asked if there's an HPV 16 history and the last few PAPs have been negative, but ASCUS, any need to be concerned about that? I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you are, if you are under regular care from your gynecologist and they are, you know, aware of your history and they have your pap smears, there's very specific guidelines um, that every gynecologist has access to about, you know, how to plan the next step, what the next pap should be, when it should be. So as long as your gynecologist has you within those guidelines, um, I would trust that you're getting proper care. In terms of the history of HPV-16, any history of HPV or HPV high risk or the highest, highest of the high risks, which are the 16 and 18, um, just means that that relationship with your gynecologist and that adherence to the PAPs and your guidelines is that much more important. Wouldn't be concerned so much, but the need for diligence is there because if an abnormality is found, it can be treated early and, and cervical cancer can be prevented. So JH is 41 and I, I don't think your answer would change. No, I think any woman, any woman with a history of any HPV or abnormal PAPs, again, it's just, um, it just solidifies really the importance of regular follow-up and communication and um, and of course, um, you know, if you feel like you're having a symptom that's not being addressed, um, to really push forward and make sure that that's being, you know, evaluated properly. All right, Dr. Long, I have one more question and I'm going to, this is, this is from me, um, because I see, I get this question all the time in the office and you mentioned wellness and taking good care of yourself. Um, HPV is a virus and in, and as such, it's an infection. Um, so... Are there things that women can do um, to take care of themselves, to give themselves, so to speak, in quotes, a healthy immune system and yeah. potentially prevent it from infecting them, even if they are, even if they are exposed? I always remind my patients that um, our bodies are human and um, we are susceptible to viruses as is, you know, we know now, we know now, <laughs> right. Like right. we're experiencing in a completely unprecedented way right now. Right. Um, but when it comes to the HPV infection, um, you can do everything right and still have dysplasia. You can be super healthy with a robust immune system and still have dysplasia and cervical cancer. Um, and, and you can do everything wrong and not have it. So there are some things that are out of our control. However, with that said, um, healthy lifestyle um, uh, and decreasing some known risk factors um, are really important. So one thing is smoking. We know that if a patient 
um, has HPV and they are a smoker, that they are much more likely to have precancer and cancer. So smoking is a big thing. Things that are, um, another big thing is the vaccine. So we all have, um, you know, um, you, you know, that's something that we can all do. And actually in our clinic, we all gave each other the vaccine when the age guidelines changed. So we all got it together um, here in my clinic. Um, the other things are a little less data-driven, but I think most of us believe in them, which is things like um, stress reduction. So getting a good amount of sleep, and eating a healthy diet, um, you know, focusing on whole foods and trying to um, trying to limit, you know, things that are common sense would tell you are unhealthy. Um, even women who have had dysplasia, there's now some evidence that getting the vaccine will prevent that dysplasia from coming back. Um, and then there are some um, holistic things that have actually been studied in a pretty rigorous way. Um, there is a a mushroom extract supplement that um, that um, data was recently um, presented at our 2009 2019 sorry um, Society for Gynecologic Oncology meeting that it decreased the recurrence of cervical related problems. So um, that would be my suggestions. Um, don't smoke. See your gynecologist. Get your vaccines, and then of course general healthy lifestyle, exercise, good sleep, um, healthy diet. And, and you do, you spend a lot of time with your patients, I know, because my patients that I've sent to you tell me that Dr. Long Roche is great, she spent a lot of time explaining things to me, so so I would expect nothing less. Uh, one more question from our uh, YouTube uh, viewers here. Okay, back to, um, oh, somebody just asked, what's the name of that, if you know the name of the mushroom extract, great. If not, no worries, we will, I'll post it, I'll post it later. It's a hexose correlated um, mushroom supplement. And if, if this is data driven, I don't know if the paper has been published, but um, if you, um, but we can get it out to people. And again, it's not something that I have any stake in. I, I actually um, really more focus on the other things, but I think if people really want something to complement um, the things that they're working with their gynecologist on, this is something that can be done. and the, study that was done on it um, uh, showed no adverse effects from it. it. It may not even be branded yet. It may, it may, yeah, I don't be, know tough, it may be hard branded. to get over, you know, in a, in a health food yeah. store. Um, okay. um, all right. So my last question for this part from a YouTube viewer, if you have HPV high risk positive, but not 16 or 18 mm -hmm. and the follow-up colposcopy was completely normal, mm -hmm. no abnormal cells, what happens next? Do you just monitor? There are very specific guidelines. Um, if, if the follow-up is normal and, and there's no dysplasia identified, then you sort of channel right back into that surveillance um, algorithm. Um, and, and like I said, there's, there's very, very specific guidelines for every situation. And so depending on that um, person's age, um, and their pap history and sort of where they are, their gynecologist will recommend the next step, which in that case sounds like it would be another pap with HPV testing at a certain interval, depending on the person's age. You said a word earlier, uh, uh, dysplasia, which I think you said was um, the, the precancerous pre pre cells. Great. Uh, okay, so, so I'm gonna ask you a ridiculous broad question. 
<laughs> what, well, actually, let me start with the precursor to the question is, because you mentioned there is a somewhat of a known timeline to potentially getting one of the high-risk HPV subtypes, and then possibly, possibly if you're someone who's going to progress to invasive cervical cancer. Is there, is there sort of a similar timeline developed for um, when you would get exposed to when, or when you would get detected, which I know are two different things, um, to when you would potentially develop cervical dysplasia? Yeah, um, it, it probably is also measured in terms of years. Um, I think that that data is um, a little harder to comment on because in many cases, um, HPV testing doesn't even start until a woman is um, in her early 30s. And so um, I don't have a, a great answer to that, um, I, but it is probably measured in, in the sense of years. Okay, so if I'm a woman and I've been diagnosed with cervical dysplasia, mm -hmm. what do I do? Should I be well, worried? Should I, I mean, what's the, what's the skinny so on that? Cervical dysplasia can be mild, moderate, or severe. And depending on um, the situation, the age of the patient, um, their desires for, you know, fertility, um, as well as the type of cervical dysplasia, um, in some cases with low-grade cervical dysplasia or mild cervical dysplasia, um, you can just continue to observe. But for higher-grade cervical dysplasia, very often um, a excisional biopsy is needed, and that is what I referenced earlier, where a portion of the cervix, a small portion in many cases, is excised to remove those abnormal cells and also to give the pathologist a little more tissue to examine to make sure that there's no cancer. So you remove part of the cervix? Is that okay? Yeah, is that okay? It is. Um, it is something that needs to be done, you know, after careful discussion. There are various tech techniques for how to do it. And certainly you need to have a good partnership with your gynecologist. Um, if you're a woman who's hoping to have pregnancies in the future, um, or a patient that's hoping to have pregnancies in the future, um, then you know um, care needs to be taken to take as small as, as is needed portion of the cervix. But the cervix is about four centimeters long, so you can remove a small part of it and it can still function for reproduction. So can I have pregnancy complications if I have part of my cervix removed? You can. Um, there is a slight increased risk of pregnancy complications with these excisional biopsies, things like preterm labor or problems with the cervix being scarred um, or the cervix being um, not holding onto a pregnancy. Um, however, um, with one excisional biopsy um, or even um, properly done two excisional biopsies, the, the risks are small. And, and I would say that um, and I always remind my patients of this, the risks of cervical cancer to a woman's fertility are much greater than the risks of an excisional biopsy if needed. Yeah, it's my under and it's my understanding even that, you know, when we talk about preterm labor um, in association with a woman having had uh, a leap or an excisional biopsy of the cervix, we're not talking about 25-week preemies. Um, for one, for one leap, where, where the vast majority, to my understanding, of preterm deliveries that occur in women who have had an excisional biopsy occur between 36 and 37 weeks. Um, so, yeah. which is, which is, 
you know, which confers a, a high degree of, of health and, and wellness, um, even though there can be some complications at that gestational age. 37 weeks is actually considered full term. Yeah, most people um, most will part. go on to have normal obstetrical care and, yeah. and outcomes. Okay, um, so what if I am totally uh, fearful? Uh, I may be someone who doesn't necessarily want to have a surgical procedure. I um, may have received two or three opinions advising me of that, and I still may not want uh, an excisional biopsy. And just to be clear, I'm putting this question to Dr. Carol Long. Um, I, I already know, I kind of already know the answer, and I always encourage patients when they have um, certainly a moderate or high-grade uh, cervical dysplasia to have an excision. Um, but there are a subset of patients out there who certainly who don't want that. So I'm going to pose the question: um, Are there any potentially complementary or alternative therapies um, that have some level of efficacy? So we do have some. Um, there is some evidence that, that using the HPV vaccination um, can help um, to treat cervical dysplasia, many times that's done in the setting of a small excisional biopsy, and then the vaccine is given, and that increases the chances that it doesn't come back. Um, there was a study done um, that looked at the use of a newer vaccine that's not out on the market to actually treat these lesions, and instead of doing an excisional biopsy, that is still in the experimental phase. There are some other techniques like ablations. Um, as an oncologist, I don't use those as often because for us, um, excision and getting pathology is really an integral part of the care. Um, and there are some select situations in which moderate cervical dysplasia can be observed um, and very closely and to see if it can regress on its own. And like with anything, you know, patient autonomy is key and patients need to hear the risks and benefits of all of their choices. And um, you know, if the patient chooses to do something that isn't what we recommend, um, we can still support them through that and make a good treatment plan. But of, of course, you know, it's our job to present the facts. Yeah, I certainly, I you know, certainly agree with that, and that's that's definitely the way to go with uh, with all of our patients. Uh, and yeah, we just you know, we because maybe because um, in my early, in the early part of my career, um, I was at the same place where you did your uh, residency, um, but. You know, ever since I came to NYU in 2001, um, I had completely abandoned, and maybe this was Dr. John Curtin's doing, completely abandoned cryo anything of for any type of dysplasia, with the understanding that yeah, you don't you don't have a tissue specimen, you don't have anything for the pathologist to read, um, and there are times when the when the colposcopy biopsies are in fact incorrect, and the yeah. entire excisional biopsy is normal. From my perspective, one thing that isn't talked about as much with the cryo is that it can make further monitoring very difficult. Um, so yep. patients can have cryo and then sometimes we can't monitor the cervix as closely. Um, but, you know, again, these are all things that are important parts of the conversation. If I'm, if I'm a woman talking to my gynecologist about whether or not to do this procedure, what the issues are, are there any critical questions that I should be asking my gynecologist? Um, I think that if, if, um, if there is a dysplasia diagnosis and the next steps are being discussed, um, I think, first of all, the desire for future pregnancies is, needs to be a huge part of the conversation. 
And I also think, um, you know, risk benefits in weighing the long term. I mean, there are women who have completed childbearing who might um, be having multiple colposcopies and pap smears and excisional biopsy recommendations, and they may choose to have a hysterectomy and remove the uterus and cervix altogether um, because that risk may be lower to them than the ongoing stress of the surveillance. To other patients, they want to keep their uterus and cervix, and, and so they would prefer to, to go that route. So I think just really understanding um, a patient's values and goals and what's important to them and what risks and they are willing to tolerate um, is really the most important part. So I just think an open dialogue is the best. So you mentioned earlier um, resources, and you mentioned that there are places where patients don't necessarily have access to the wonderful system and the wonderful physicians and technologies and techniques that we have here. Uh, I mean, New York City for one, but certainly there may be other parts of the U.S. where those resources aren't available. Let's. I'm, Let's talk about some of that, that either uh, those health disparities that are associated with either lower income areas or, or, or countries that are not as well off. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, certainly in terms of the, the, the planet, um, there are countries that don't have um, access to regular pap smears, to gynecologists and gynecologic oncologists and procedures. Um, however, interestingly, some of those countries are actually doing better than we are with HPV vaccinations. Rwanda is an amazing example. They used a um, community health worker um, um, strategy to um, increase the vaccination rates, and they have increased their HPV vaccination rate in girls to 93% population. And so we expect to see a drastic decline in cervical cancer there. Interestingly, they don't give the HPV vaccine as readily there to boys because they don't have access to it like we do. They need to save it for the girls. Um, other countries like Australia has really done a great job of getting HPV vaccines out. I think in the US, we have a lot more fear about, about vaccines and that's limited us, even though we actually have access, ready, ready access to it. Sure. Um, but we do still see disparities even within our country, um, socioeconomic status and racial disparities that, that we as providers need to make more efforts to overcome. Um, I think that there, um, unfortunately, is a loss of trust. Um, probably some is valid, but um, some of it um, maybe is just people have had bad experiences. And so um, we need to regain trust and we need to increase access to healthcare um, and access to these strategies that can keep people healthy. So what, so what, I mean, in, across healthcare, we understand, we did a show on this with, uh, you know, do you know Terri Ann Bennett? Do you remember her? She, she was at NYU oh, probably yeah. sometime after you. She, she, yeah. we did a show with her on, and we spent a lot, we spent the whole show really talking about racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. So we yeah. know that across healthcare and across women's health um, specifically, there are certainly um, inequities in racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. How does that in the United States, um, how does that look for black and Hispanic uh, women uh, in the United States? Yeah, well, um, one thing, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, we know that black women are much more likely to be diagnosed um, with uterine cancer at a later stage um, than, than white women. And I think um, some of that is that um, we need to do a better job of listening to patients when they come in with symptoms. Um, 
And I, I think that we have not done a good job of listening to patients equally. Um, and so there are certainly disparities in, um, and I think that also can be extrapolated to cervical cancer and dysplasia, um, that, um, that women of color and patients of color, um, in, in black women especially, um, unfortunately have worse outcomes um, because of these healthcare disparities. And we just, we all need to acknowledge it and, and do a better job and do our own learning. And um, as a person, I'm doing it and we're trying to do that here at Sloan Kettering and, um, and hopefully we'll get better. We had a great conversation today. Um, yeah, thanks so a, a fantastic <laughs> chat about everything HPV, pap smears, cervical cancers, carrier, amazing. Uh, we, we could talk all day about this stuff and I know how much you deeply care about your patients and I know how uh, much your patients, uh, uh, your patients really appreciate what you do for them. Um, we, this has been Women's Health Weekly uh, from New York City with Dr. Carol Long Roche from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Next week we're going totally, we're doing a total 180 next week. I th we, we haven't decided it's either natural beauty products or we're going to do weight loss and nutrition uh, and a revisit on that. Um, and um, once again, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Long Roche for your time. I wish everybody a wonderful, healthy and safe and hopefully somewhat dry weekend. Thank you very much and God bless all.